In the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska, caribou roam and deliver their calves. Polar bears step from ice onto land, and waterfowl feed before their long journey south. The Wildlife Refuge is one of the largest areas of untouched wilderness in the United States. Since the 1980s, it's also been coveted for untapped oil and gas thought to lie underground. Until now, federal regulations have protected the land, but in its final months, the Trump administration began a firm push to open 1.6 million acres for drilling. In November, it issued a call for nominations that allows oil and gas companies to specify the land they want to lease. Joe Biden's inauguration may well stop the drilling, but the prospect still alarms the Gwich'in people of Alaska, who consider this land sacred. They and other indigenous groups have filed a lawsuit to stop oil and gas development on the refuge's coastal plain. In this story from KALW Public Radio in San Francisco and its series Sacred Steps, reporter Daisha Eaton takes us to Alaska. She introduces us to one Gwich'in woman who is dedicated to protecting the place where she and her people believe life begins. Everything that matters to Sarah James and to the animals central to her culture is right here. She and I are out walking close to her home near the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. She points to the spongy ground beneath our feet. Caribou likes to eat that. Light-colored lichen covers the tundra like snow. That plant helps the caribou digest their food gradually on their long annual migration. You release... Uh... Uh, nutrition slowly. They're also on the move, uh, burning up energy. So this one helps them retain energy, retain uh, nutritional value in their body. The lichen, an all-you-can-eat buffet for the herd, is one reason her Gwich'in ancestors chose this as the permanent location for their village. We're in this valley. And caribou, when caribou's on the move, they tend to come through this valley within sight of where Sarah lives. Here, more than 100 miles above the Arctic Circle, the sky is light 24-7 in summer. Most of her neighbors spend the season outdoors, camping, close to where they can hunt caribou. Even as the world around them has changed, that still counts for three-quarters of what they eat. Although many Gwich'in became Christians when Episcopal missionaries arrived in the 1800s, they continue to believe that spirits inhabit objects and places. Inside her cabin, Sarah shows me a picture that demonstrates how this belief system informs the steeple of the old church in Arctic Village. Arrows going up with a cross on it, and there's arrow going a four direction, and in between, there's one big lump, another big lump, and then little lump. And that means bless the whole uh, solar system. Centuries before astronomers and space explorers grasped this, Sarah says the Gwich'in got it. I'm just really amazed at my people, how much they know how much they care about the whole universe. Sarah's in her late 70s. It takes hard work to live here. She says it's good exercise. We have outhouse. We don't have running water here. I pack my treated water from a river 
I still walk. I still rake my yard. She's lived here in Arctic Village most of her life. One of her first memories is running alongside a dog sled on a hunting trip with her family and eating fresh caribou meat roasted over an open fire. Stories passed down through the generations tell of a time before fur trappers arrived from Canada when even more life thrived here. Mating calls and bird songs filled the air. It was a land of the plenty, my mom calls it. In the springtime especially, it's so noisy that people have to yell at each other to understand each other. The story goes that so many migratory birds arrived each spring, they cast a shadow over the land. And there were so many fish in the streams and rivers that the water only trickled around them. Then there was the porcupine caribou herd. To Gwich'in people, these animals are not just food. We care so much for the caribou. We take care of them, and they, in, in return, they take care of us. Uh, we're in, in their heart, and they're in our hearts. Alaska's political leaders have different ideas about what the refuge where the caribou roam is good for. That's generated decades of tension between them and the Gwich'in. Since the late 50s, before Alaska statehood, the federal government expanded that area for protection. But the prospect of oil and gas development in the refuge has glimmered like a mirage. The government has studied that possibility. Today, Alaska is the only state that doesn't impose income tax or sales tax on its people. Oil production in other parts of the state made that possible. Sarah and her people, the Netsai Gwich'in, would rather protect the wildlife refuge than allow oil drilling there. They say the process of oil extraction will threaten the caribou on which they depend, and they contend that the fossil fuel economy isn't sustainable. Recycle, reuse, reduce, and refuse, and use less oil until we don't have to use oil anymore. And that's what which is all about. We want to teach the world in a good way why we say no to oil, and that's our mission. Sarah didn't speak English until her teens when she went to Bureau of Indian Affairs boarding school in Oregon. Then the agency sent her to learn secretarial skills at a business college in San Francisco. She never set foot in a city that big. The rampant consumerism and litter shocked her. But the 60s counterculture fascinated her. So did the convergence of young indigenous people bent on self-determination. When one of them invited Sarah on a boat ride to Alcatraz Island, she had no idea that the spur-of-the-moment sail with her new friends would make history. To the great white father and all his people, we, the Native Americans, reclaim the land known as Alcatraz Island in the name of all American Indians by right of discovery. The occupation lasted 19 months, from November 1969 to June 1971. Sarah didn't stay that long. When her father died in 1970, she returned home to Arctic Village. She brought with her a lot of what she'd absorbed in the big city, ideas from the Indian rights movement, knowledge of the laws that applied to Native Americans, and strategies for resistance. She worked in the village school and in tribal government. Sarah also became a mother and focused her activism on saving the coastal plain of the wildlife refuge from oil drilling and pipelines. 
With reverence, she explains the Gwich'in name for the coastal plain, the sacred place where life begins. That's because every June for thousands of years, the porcupine caribou herd has given birth on that narrow strip of land to the north, inside the refuge. It's very small, limited area, coastal plain. Only place a porcupine caribou could have their calf safely, quiet, private, and clean. And every birth needs that. Noise from oil drilling and industrial development drives these animals away. They're not able to deliver their offspring anywhere else. They can't do it on a lot of foothills. There's predators there. They can't do it on the mountain. It's too cold. So the only place is that one small coastal area up in the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. After they give birth, they nurse and raise their calves until fall, when they move south through the mountains, right down to where we're visiting. Indigenous land claims are complicated, but unlike some tribes, the Gwich'in were able to gain ownership of more than a million acres. 1.8 million acres were not part of Alaska Land Claim Settlement Act. We got our own tribal government. Federal Indian law guarantees the right to self-determination, including continued access to subsistence and cultural resources like caribou. The Native American Rights Fund believes Sarah's tribal government has the legal standing to sue and keep the federal government from carrying out its plan to drill for oil. And we have a right to be a caribou people. We believe God put us here to take care of that, this part of the uh, world, Earth, and we did well with our caribou. Before the mid-20th century, Gwich'in migrated among seasonal foraging and hunting camps. They only settled in permanent villages as the state of Alaska was forming because the government wanted them to register their children in schools. Sarah is Netsai Gwich'in. So uh, all the Netsai Gwich'in are located uh, northeast of Yukon Territory and uh, some part of McKinsey Delta area of northwest and northeast of Alaska. We're all one uh, nation of Netsaiguchen. Uh, and in Canada too, right? I just said that. Sarah gets impatient repeating herself because she has to explain this stuff to outsiders a lot. Every decade or so over the last half century, the federal government has revived the prospect of drilling in the wildlife refuge. In the late 1980s, leaders of the Gwich'in Nation across the U.S. and Canada border gathered for the first time in over 100 years to address the issue. They agreed they had to tell the world their story, as they say, in a good way. It was a really hard decision in 1988 for our elders. They were crying and praying because they knew that drawing attention to their area would attract more outsiders. They designated her as one of six people to speak on their behalf. During a 2011 hearing of the U.S. House Natural Resources Committee in Washington, D.C., Alaska Congressman Don Young compared the proposed drilling site in relation to the wildlife refuge to a hair on your head, Pluck it out, and you wouldn't miss it. The reality is this area should be drilled. I've been fighting this battle for 39 years. It was set aside for drilling. 
Alaska's two U.S. senators agree with him. At another point in the same hearing, Sarah stood her ground, as she had many times before. Ms. James, you're recognized for five minutes. I'm honored to speak behalf of this committee uh, for my uh, nation, which is Kuch'en Nation. Caribou is uh, our way of life, just like the buffalo is to the Plains Indians. It's our song, it's our dance, it's our story. In her cabin, it's only the two of us. Sarah brings out an animal hide drum and places it on her lap. This is what she means when she invokes the caribou as her people's song, dance, and story. This, the caribou skin hut dance song, is a traditional welcome song of the Netzai Gwich'in people. Sarah says it came about when the Netzai were starving, and a shaman shared with them his dream about the caribou. To survive, he said, the human inhabitants would need to be like the caribou, adaptable, on the move, together. Back in bow and arrow day before the first contact, we used to uh, live in caribou skin hut. In addition to the skin huts made from caribou, the Gwich'in used every other part of the animal to make tools, clothes, and household items. They accommodated waves of newcomers, the French-Canadian trappers from Hudson Bay, the Americans, and others. Uh, we are welcome people. It didn't do us many times. Uh, it didn't help us to welcome, but overall, it's a good practice for our people. We are generous people. We are uh, welcome people, and and today we have to survive together because we welcomed them when they first came to our country and we have to live together side by side. Until very recently, the Gwich'in were able to hold off outsiders' attempts to drill in the area. Then, in 2017, Congress passed the Trump administration's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It included a provision that required the Interior Department to approve at least two lease sales for drilling in the refuge within 10 years. That agency's Bureau of Land Management has filed a final environmental impact statement. The Interior Department plans to hold a lease sale by the end of 2020. In her worldview, Sarah James says this makes no sense. My people always say they believe uh, in Christianity even before that they practice the same practice. It's, it's just that they don't have a story behind the, the Ten Commandments. We kept that and taking care of the environment because the creator made it good. To show me this environment, Sarah revs up her four-wheel all-terrain vehicle, and I hop on behind. Everybody gets around town this way. She drops me off to visit one of her neighbors, 61-year-old Charlie Swainy. He's a hunter who's married to Sarah's niece. Well, we are. Uh... We built this house here from scratch, me and my wife, in 1991. That house includes a big picture window. Well, I'll tell you, the, the most spectacular sight I've seen is, as far as you can see, the last mountain down there, from there all the way across to the entire other side of the mountain here was a line of caribou from back to back lined up. I don't know how many thousands that was, but 
It lasted about eight hours straight. One straight line of caribou, tail to tail. And up on the other side of the mountains, where the tundra sweeps up into the foothills from the coast, the caribou move across the calving and nursery grounds with their young. They sound like this. They're feeding on plants packed with nutrients. Thousands of female caribou gather here with their new calves, as they do each spring. Their grunts are the way the cows and their babies call to each other. As they walk, the herd sounds and moves like a river. Their hooves and foot joints go click, click. It's the longest migration of any land mammal on Earth. Tens of thousands of caribou trekking as many as 3,000 miles every year. Charlie says people here want to rely on caribou instead of imported, store-bought food that costs two or three times what it does in Alaska's cities. You might say that, uh, you know, there's not much money here, or that only seasonal jobs and all that, and some people might think that uh, uh, we're poor wives, but uh, if you look at this lifestyle, this is a rich lifestyle here. And that means everything to, to people here. Most people in Arctic Village earn around $20,000 a year or less. Farther south along the banks of the Yukon River, other Gwich'in people also depend on the same herd. That's why 19-year-old Araya Stofa has joined the movement to protect the refuge. Over the summer, she returned from college in Iowa to work with the nonprofit Gwich'in Steering Committee, which Sarah founded with other leaders in the 80s. Being able to able to subsistence, hunt, and go get your own food is a blessing. A lot of people don't realize it until they're taken out of the village and have to go to the grocery store. But there's something in the inside that makes you feel so much better to harvest your own food. And there is a spiritual connection. That connection is critical for young Gwich'in like her. Like when I left for school out of state, like, I felt lost. Similar feelings of displacement contribute to high rates of substance abuse and suicide among young Alaska natives. And I feel like if we didn't have the porcupine caribou herd anymore, I feel like that's how everybody else would feel too. They would feel lost because our ancestors built such a strong relationship with them. And I feel like that passed down to us. Many people her age view oil and gas extraction as modern-day colonization. Part of Sarah's work is about ensuring that young people have a future here. You may have heard the indigenous idea that it's necessary to think seven generations ahead. Sarah says with what we know about climate change and the renewable energy and technological advances on the horizon, there will be more need to preserve the ecosystem here than to extract more oil from it. Sometimes she imagines that earlier generations' lives were better. I can't go back to bow and arrow like I want to. I do want to go back to bow and arrow when we were healthy, strong, and a lot of us and the healthy earth. I want to go back to that, but now we're all together, and we have to do it together in order to survive. Sarah believes God has a plan to protect the sacredness she knows. Her tribal government does, too. For almost as long as Alaska's been a state, attorneys for the tribe have prepared for a legal showdown with the U.S. government over drilling. 
So, she concludes, They gotta face our government now. Two sovereign nations butting horns in court. Again, she uses its Gwich'in name, the sacred place where life begins. It's a public land. It's your land. It's your kid's future. Uh, it's my kid's future. Tell your neighbor. Tell your family in the living room. Like she's been telling everybody within earshot for most of her life. I'm Daisha Eaton in Arctic Village, Alaska. That story was part of a series out of KALW Public Radio called Sacred Steps. It was reported by Daisha Eaton. The archival tape you heard is from the documentary film Taking Alcatraz. Caribou recordings are from the soundscape artist Richard Nelson. Sacred Steps is a collaboration with KALW's The Spiritual Edge and USC's Center for Religion and Civic Culture. The Alaska Humanities Forum also supported the reporting. Cheryl Duvall is the Sacred Steps editor. Tarek Fuda is the engineer. You can find photos from this story and others from Sacred Steps at kalw.org. I'm Judy Silber, executive editor of The Spiritual Edge. Thanks for listening.